Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So today we're exploring the unsolved December 1984 murder of Lacey Milton Hatchell. Now at the time of his death, Milton, or Milt as he was known to family and friends, was a 31-year-old recently divorced father of one. He was a nice guy, gregarious, generous, almost to a fault. Certainly not someone you'd expect to one day be found dead, shot in the chest, and beaten so severely in the head and face with a blunt object that he was virtually unrecognizable. Milton had been born in North Carolina, the oldest of Lacey and Almina Hatchell's four children. His parents had met in an unusual way. Almina was an avid reader and had always wanted a set of encyclopedias. So one day, an encyclopedia salesman comes into the military store where she'd been working, and she buys a set. And the salesman tells her that another man will be stopping by the store in the future to collect her set of payments for the encyclopedias. And that collector would turn out to be Lacey Hatchell. So I'm in the store working, and this collector comes around. I said, and he came around to collect, and he collected me. Milton was a good son, his mom says. He never gave her trouble and was especially close to his sister, Candace, who was born a year and a half later. Candace said her brother was extremely popular. As the family grew, Lacey Hatchell got a new job and later promotions that would prompt the family to make several moves. For Candace, the moves were devastating. She clung to her big brother, who seemed to handle each transition with ease, making new friends instantly. I was kind of shy and um, back then, and. Um, not very assertive, but I, but I had this allegiance with him. I had this connection with him. I, I, I adored him. I adored him. He was my hero. And I was scared everywhere we moved. And he would just take me under his little wing. He, and I just I always knew I could go to him no matter what. So when Milton was 12, Dallas would become the family's new home. Milton attended Brian Adams High School, working part-time at a Skiller drugstore as a stock boy and cashier. He loved his job and stayed on at the drugstore, working weekends, even after graduating high school in 1971 and going to what was then known as East Texas State University in Commerce, a good 90 minutes away. Kevin Cox was an incoming freshman at East Texas State when he was randomly paired to be roommates with Milton, then a sophomore, in Hubble Hall. Now, Kevin and Milton were complete opposites, both appearance and personality-wise. Kevin had long hair and a mustache, kind of hippie-looking, and was very shy. Milton, on the other hand, was a fast-talking extrovert with short hair. He looked a lot like John Denver. And despite their differences, Kevin remembers Milton being very welcoming to him. You could be around a short period of time, and that's, he just would have treated you like he'd known you forever. So, I mean, I don't even know if he had a a different way for responding to people. I, I think he only had like one, which was like, hey, we're great friends. Now, Kevin says Melton shared everything he had. If we walked into the room with food from McDonald's, you could bet you'd be getting half of it. Kevin says he tried to protect Milton, an easy target for people who always seemed to need a loan but never paid it back. He was one of the most generous people you could imagine. I, I, I mean, I literally would joke with people at the time. I'd say, like, if Milton's got, like, a dollar, I've got 50 cents. I mean, I, whatever he had, he really wanted to share. Now, Milton didn't seem especially interested in college. 
While Kevin studied religiously, Milton could usually be found downstairs on weeknights playing cards and poker with others. Kevin says he thinks Milton just didn't have a clue what he really wanted to do in life, but he went to college to appease his parents. His parents were hopeful that because I was such a good student that that would somehow inspire him to become a better student. Um, it didn't quite work out, out that there. way. <laughs> no, I don't think I could work miracles. Now, what Milton did have, however, was a very strong work ethic. Every weekend, he drove back to Dallas to work at the drugstore. As far as I know, the guy never spent a weekend on um, on campus. He never complained about, oh, I have to hop in the car as fast as classes are over Friday and get back and work. To him, that was like a good thing. So Milton had also spent that first semester trying to convince Kevin to go out with his sister Candace. He'd bring Candace up again and again, Kevin says, talking about how the two would hit it off, they'd be perfect for each other. And Kevin, who had never even met Milton's family, politely just kind of blew him off. So I just never really responded. I mean, I just like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I should do that sometime. Um, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I used to wonder, like, what is the deal? Is this girl can't get a date or something? What? Kevin had returned from Christmas break before Milton. He can still vividly remember being in the dorm room one Sunday evening when Milton arrived in a whirlwind of excitement. And in his usual way, he comes bursting through the door and, uh, and it just like immediately says, okay, I had to leave my car in Dallas uh, to get worked on. I caught a ride to campus. You're going to have to drive me back this weekend. You can go out with my sister when you do. And here's her picture. And it was really, literally just like his usual burst of energy coming at me. And then the picture he's like handing to me, uh, which I still have. This is a picture of her sitting in front of a cake uh, for her 17th birthday. So I wrote you the photo. I thought, oh, she's pretty. And uh, so I said, okay, Milton, I'll, I'll take you home and I'll go out with your sister. That Friday, Kevin kept his word. He drove Milton to his home in Dallas and meets Milton's family. He remembers Milton's mom was making fat back for dinner, something he'd never heard of at the time. I had to Google it myself. It's fat from the back of a pig, a popular dish in Milton's home state of North Carolina. And on Saturday, as Milton worked, Kevin and Candace went to the mall together. We just had a great time at the mall hanging out together. I just, you know, we were just, it was perfect. And uh, she bought me a book uh, at a bookstore there. Uh, what was the book? By Larry McMurtry. It's a paperback copy of All My Friends Are Gonna Be Strangers by Larry McMurtry. I still have the book. So after eating that evening, Kevin and Candace went out for a movie, then came back to Candace and Milton's house, where they stayed up until the wee hours of the morning talking. Milton had been right. They've been together ever since. It was love at first sight. We absolutely were, it was truly love at first sight. Now, that Milton would be trying to set up his roommate with his sister surprises me. I mean, I have an older brother, and there is no way he would have ever tried to set me up with one of his friends when we were younger. But Milton was thrilled when Candace and Kevin got together, even more so when his sister and Kevin later married. He knew Kevin was a good person and would take care of his little sister as their lives went different directions. For Milton, his path would lead him to South Texas. He left East Texas State after two years and moved to Austin where he took some classes at UT's pharmacy school. He became an assistant manager at Skillern's, splitting his time between stores in Austin and San Antonio, and eventually moving to San Antonio to manage a store. In February 1975, 
He mentions in the letter to his sister that he's dating a woman named Nancy and that it's becoming serious. Milton wouldn't be able to make it to Candace and Kevin's wedding in North Carolina in May of 1975, nor would they be able to attend Milton's wedding to Nancy in San Antonio the next month. There was a visit or two after that and an occasional exchanging of letters. Soon, Milton and Nancy would welcome a son they'd named Joshua. Candace and Kevin would later have a child too. Eventually, Milton and his family would move to Arlington with Milton working in Dallas again. At the time of his death, he managed the Page Drug Store on Hillside Village in Dallas. Though he was only five when Milton was murdered, Joshua still holds great memories of his father. He remembers playing wiffle ball with his dad in the backyard, how he'd always try to hit the ball over the fence, and if he succeeded, how Milton would come running over to him and give him a big hug. He can still vividly recall the time Milton, a big fan of the Incredible Hulk TV show, once pretended to turn into the muscular green creature. I got really scared and uh, started crying in the living room. And um, he ran to me and said, no, not the Hulk, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. So I, I have a lot of memories like that. Um, I remember waiting at the window for him every day that he would come home from work. Uh, and I was really excited to see him, and he was excited to see me. He also remembers the day his dad brought him home a pop-up Halloween book from Skillern's. It had kid-friendly monsters in it. And I had misbehaved that day, so my mother said, you can't, you can't give him the book because he's been bad. So he, he put it in the, in the closet the very next day. I, I, he asked if I was good, and I was, and I remember him giving me that book, and I, and I actually still have it. Uh, we, we look at that once in a while. Do you show it to your kids now? No, it's kind of uh, torn up now, but uh, it, that's just for me. So just before the summer of 1984, the couple bought a house in the 4700 block of Poppy Drive East in North Fort Worth in the thin new Summerfields neighborhood. But there were problems in their marriage, and in mid-July, the couple filed for divorce. I do remember sitting there, and it was an unfair question. Uh, I was asked, you know, who do you want to live with? And that's the only negative memory that I remember. And I think that they were doing their best, you know, to make it as easy as possible on me. But it's not an easy situation. Uh, that's the only negative memory I have of my father. Joshua says what he didn't understand then, but would learn in later years, was that his father's infidelity was at the root of their split up. I remember him coming home one, or one day. It was a nighttime but I wasn't asleep there or anything. Uh, he came in and I opened the door and he was crying. And he says, is your mom there? I need to talk to her. And I remember that that was the kind of the time when uh, he, he didn't want to get divorced. He knew he made a mistake. He was always sorry for it that I know of. So in a letter Milton sent to Candace that July, he wrote about the pending divorce and how Nancy planned to move with Josh the next month to Houston to start over. I still love her and I wish her well. We just can't live together anymore, he wrote. In that same letter, he tells Candace about a new woman in his life. He refers to her as his quote, unquote, future wife. She is in Arkansas fleeing from her husband who is a wife abuser, Milton wrote. He has worked her over before and she is scared of him. She left him and is under the protection of her dad in Arkansas. Candace called her brother immediately upon receiving the letter, expressing concern for his safety as he was involved with a just-separated woman with an allegedly abusive husband. Milton acknowledged that he believed if the woman's ex knew about him, he would kill him. I expressed fear. I expressed fear. I mean, I truly remember feeling fear 
like what in the world and and I said and he, and I told him that and he said don't worry about me I know how to take care of myself in a December 11th phone call a crying Milton would tell Candace that the relationship with the woman was not working out he was depressed she says and told her he was now dating other women he told her that when he looked in the mirror he didn't even recognize himself anymore he was lost and he was trying to find himself Candace urged her big brother to slow down, that he wouldn't find himself in all these women. Our, our conversation after that for several minutes was about not being, just to relax a little bit and, and, and not be so um, in a hurry to get involved with somebody. And, you know, especially at the tail end of the divorce was to be finalized three days after this conversation. And he's just, he was just so lonely. And he missed Josh, and um, he, just, he just couldn't bear that. He just couldn't bear being alone. Milton would last talk to his sister and his mother on Christmas Day. He was planning on coming to North Carolina for a visit after the new year. Almina Hatchell was worried about how her oldest son was spending the holiday. And I did ask him. I said, Milton, are you alone? He said, no, Mom, I got somebody with me. Did that make you feel better, knowing he wasn't alone on Christmas Day? Yeah, that had concerned me, because he couldn't get home, and we couldn't get out there. So, yeah, that was, that was important. So apparently Milton was spending Christmas Day with a co-worker, a woman he just started seeing. Three days later, he'd be found murdered. A newspaper deliverer would find Milton's body about 5.30 a.m. December 28th on the sidewalk in front of a neighbor's house. He'd been shot in the chest, just under his left nipple, the bullet perforating his left lung. But it was not the gunshot wound that killed him. Investigators believe even after being shot in the chest, Milton tried to make it to the house of a neighbor who lived across the street from him for help. He would make it as far as the neighbor's yard, where investigators think his attacker, or attackers, began to beat him with an unknown object. Though media reports would say at the time that he was struck more than 40 times, the autopsy would actually reveal 62 blunt injuries, primarily on Milton's face, head, neck, back, and upper extremities. Fort Worth cold case detective L. Wagner says Milton had defensive wounds from where he tried to protect himself from the blows. And that's, that's why he had um, marks on his, you know, arms and hands and stuff like that because he's obviously trying to stop from being attacked. Neither the gun nor the weapon that Milton was repeatedly struck with was left at the scene. They were not able to determine yet at the time um, what the actual object was, but they believed that it was something similar in shape to either a tire iron or a, or a hammer because of the markings that were left on his body. When found, Milton's body lay face down on the sidewalk, his head pointed toward the street, and one of his hands draped over the curb. A bloody trail in the neighbor's front yard showed where Milton had likely been dragged by his attackers through the grass, across the neighbor's driveway, and onto the sidewalk. Milton was, was beat so badly the teeth were on the sidewalk. Milton's bare feet were crossed. Investigators would later learn from family that Milton liked to drive barefoot. They'd once even bought him a special gas pedal in the shape of a foot. At the end of the block, police found Milton's car. A dent from a bullet was visible on the back panel of the driver's side, leading investigators to theorize that Milton may have first been shot at while driving. 
On the car's floorboard lay Milton's shoes. He'd never had a chance to even put them back on. So it appeared as though the car had been stopped immediately where it was and that at some point he exited his vehicle, headed towards his house, but didn't quite make it before he was attacked. Police talked to neighbors, but nobody claimed to have seen or heard anything. Now, early on, the murder seemed anything but random to investigators. It was a safe neighborhood in a popular subdivision where North Fort Worth's booming growth took root. Milton had no criminal history and had been described by friends and family as a nice, hardworking man. When his body was found, he still had some money in his pocket and a ring on his finger. I don't think that they ever thought that this was a robbery. From the very beginning, their instincts told them that this was somebody that wanted Milton harmed. That this was not a random killing, that this was not a robbery gone bad. Now, just the manner in which someone is killed can tell investigators a lot. Overkill is how the original homicide detective, Larry Steffler, would later describe the brutal homicide to a Star-Telegram reporter. When somebody is attacked that many times, that tells me that there is emotion behind it. If somebody is simply going to get robbed or killed for some mundane reason or another that doesn't have any passion behind it, they're not going to be attacked 40-something plus times. That tells me somebody was emotionally invested for whatever reason with Milton, whether it's hate, jealousy, love, whatever the reason, somebody was emotionally involved in attacking him. And that's why they continued to attack him until his face was virtually unrecognizable. So who would be driven to so viciously attack and kill Milton? Almost immediately, police would detain for questioning a man who had literally just moved into Milton's house. Now, Milton had advertised in a Christian newspaper for a roommate, someone to help him pay the bills in the modest house where he now lived alone. Candace says he'd chosen to advertise in a Christian newspaper because he'd had no luck finding decent people in ads he'd placed elsewhere. So this man answered that ad, he met with Milton, and they came to an agreement. In fact, he had driven to Milton's drugstore on December 27th to pick up the key from Milton so that he could move in that very evening. I mean, what are the chances that this guy would end up moving into Milton's house just hours before Milton is found murdered? The investigators thought it was very odd that he was there at Milton's house and they wanted to know why. So he was interviewed and he was looked into and he was eliminated ultimately. Okay. His timing was, was odd, yes, but they had no reason to believe that he was connected in any way to Milton's death. Now, as is routine, they looked into Milton's ex-wife. I mean, after all, the couple's divorce had only been finalized on December 14th, just two weeks before Milton was found dead. They looked into the ex-wife. She was living in another city at the time. So I don't think that they had any reason or indication to believe that she was related to what happened to Milton that night. But two men, exes of women that Milton had been recently involved with, were included in the suspect pool that police looked at. Neither has been excluded as suspects today, Wagner says. One was the ex of the woman who had fled to Arkansas to escape her allegedly abusive marriage. But the ex-husband was allegedly working around the time Milton was killed. The other potential suspect 
was the former boyfriend of the colleague with whom Milton had spent Christmas Day. So we have two potential uh, women that have males that could be very angry and upset with Milton. The latter suspect was especially of interest to investigators. Police would soon learn that the colleague's ex-boyfriend had made threats to the woman in Milton. Milton had even told a friend that the woman's ex-boyfriend was a bookie who had threatened Milton not to see the woman anymore. Adding to investigators' suspicions was that there had even been a confrontation at the store involving the ex-boyfriend on December 27th, just hours before Milton would be found dead. That night, after the store had closed, Milton had followed the woman back to her Garland home. They spent some time together before he began the trek back to Fort Worth at about 1.30 a.m. Could that man, and possibly friends of his, have followed Milton, shooting at Milton's car as he neared his home, prompting him to get out on foot and try to run for help? Or could that man have known where Milton lived and was laying in wait? They, they interviewed multiple witnesses that backed up the fact that um, the girlfriend's ex-boyfriend had been very violent in the past, that uh, he had displayed a gun and threatened her, threatened her sister, had even abducted her a few days earlier and held her against her will, and Milton came and saved her because she was able to get away at a service station. Uh, There were people at the store that had overheard conversations on the phone, and he had also showed up to the drugstore and had heated conversations with both Milton and the girlfriend. Now, it would not be until almost a month later that police were able to track down the woman's ex-boyfriend and interview him. Milton's family says they'd heard the man had left town on a trip shortly after Milton's murder. Wagner says police talked to the man and that initially he was cooperative. He insisted he wasn't involved. He said he knew nothing about it. And when they offered to give him a polygraph so that they could eliminate him, he said, sure, I'll take a polygraph. And he never showed up. And then he just flat out refused when they contacted him again. And then ever since then, it's been nothing but refusals whenever law enforcement has tried to recontact him. Wagner said police didn't have any other information or evidence to pursue him further at that time. He had motive. He had a temper. He owned a gun. You know, all of these things and and the fact that this was their last contact with him was that same day. He had some sort of a heated argument with them at the store that same day. But what what people don't realize is that, you know, we can we can speculate all that we want and and know, know that somebody did something, but we still need the help of anybody else that can corroborate things to make a stronger case. News of Milton's murder shocked his family, most now living back in North Carolina. Nancy, Milton's ex-wife, would be the one to deliver the news in a phone call to Milton's father at the auto store that he and his wife owned in Wallace, North Carolina. Lacey Hatchell would then in turn break the news to his wife that their oldest son had been murdered. He was in the parking lot beside in front of the store. And um, he called me over and told me that they're in the car. And we just sat there for a while. We couldn't say anything, do anything. Next, Lacey Hatchell would take on the difficult task of notifying each of his other children. When he called Candace, who was then five months pregnant with her second child, she was home alone. Kevin had taken their one-year-old son with him to pick up his paycheck from the newspaper that he was working at at the time. 
Lacey Hatchell didn't want to tell her the news without Kevin being home, but Candace sensed in his voice that something was terribly wrong and insisted. Well, I just remember screaming, just sitting on the living room floor and just screaming and screaming and I cried and cried and cried. She remembers it was warm that day and that she'd had the windows open. She closed them so the neighbors wouldn't hear her sobs. At the newspaper, Kevin can remember a coworker telling him that Candace was on the phone, that she sounded upset and needed to talk to him. He cradled the phone to his ear while holding their young son in the middle of the newsroom and can still vividly recall his confusion as his wife began shouting and sobbing that Milton had been killed. I was stunned and then trying to like, you know, when people tell you something that ridiculous, that crazy, I really was like, are they sure? I mean, it's just, maybe it's not Milton, maybe they're all wrong. Joshua Hatchell, who was living with his mom in Houston at the time, can still remember his mom trying to explain his father's death, an unimaginable conversation to have to have with such a young child. I just remember when she pulled me in the uh, bedroom and she, she was telling me that, uh, you know, that the, that the murder happened. And to tell a five-year-old this, I don't remember exactly what she said, of course, but I do remember that she said at one point, uh, this, you know, this means that you'll never see him again. Lacey and Almina Hatchell began the long drive to Fort Worth the morning after learning about their son's death. While they were away, their other children ran the auto parts store and made burial arrangements for Milton in North Carolina. Kevin remembers how cold it was that day they went to the Riverview Cemetery in Willard, North Carolina to pick out the spot where Milton would be laid to rest. When I go, it bothers me. Um, he was such a full life person. Um, and he liked to be out with people. And uh, it's, kind of, it's a nice little country cemetery. Um, but it's not where I wanted to be. Now, when you're caught up in grief, emotions and tensions can run high. And that was exactly the case with Milton's loved ones. Milton would have two funerals, one in Texas and the other later in North Carolina. At Milton's Texas funeral, there would be tension between the Hatchells and Milton's ex-wife's family, erupting into an exchange of heated words. The reasons aren't particularly clear, and each side has their different perspectives on what happened. But whatever the reason, Nancy Hatchell feared that Milton's parents were going to try to get custody of Josh, so she cut off all contact with the family. So that funeral would be the last time the grandparents would be able to see their grandson, the last time he'd have communications with that side of the family. 34 years later, that loss of communication with Josh is something that weighs heavily on Milton's side of the family. Now, growing up after his dad's death, Josh says there were financial hardships as his mother worked to support them both. Milton's father, the executor of Milton's estate, had set up a trust fund for Josh, the sole beneficiary to Milton's life insurance. Josh says he remembers using the money for a violin and guitar lessons as a child. And when he turned 18, the money would put him through college and later be used for a down payment on his first house. He said as a child, he saw counselors and says he always felt his dad's absence, even over little things, like not having someone there to teach him how to shave. When he'd do it, he'd cut himself, so he avoided shaving altogether. And as a result, he says he was often sent to the principal's office because the school had a shaving policy. That's a silly story. Uh, honestly, it, it's haunted us greatly. Um, 
I have anger issues. I have very bad depression. I'm on medication for it. Um, I have to, you know, watch myself. I've never been violent, but I do yell a lot, and, and I don't have a very long fuse in certain situations. And I really think that as I grew up, I just, I don't know. They can cope with it perfectly well. Family members deal with the lingering anguish of his unsolved murder in their own ways. For Josh, he's come to accept that no arrest has been made. He believes that the ex-boyfriend that investigators have long suspected was involved and that police simply cannot pin it on him or any accomplices he may have had. But Josh says he's forgiven that man. He says he's converted to Catholicism after meeting his wife and her family, yearning for the calm and peace that they seem to share. And I had to you know, do the things that Catholics do, like confession and, and stuff, and I was asked to forgive your enemies. So that's a tough thing. I mean, when you start thinking about your worst enemies, the men that we believed did it always came up in my head. And I had to forgive him for it, and I did it. I did forgive him. Josh now works as a prison garden. He says his main goal in life has been to be a good father and husband because he's seen, he's lived, the pain created by infidelity and a father's absence. If anyone takes anything away from this, I hope that they take away that it matters to have a nuclear family, to keep everything together and to love your wife and your children. Because I have three kids now and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of my father. But I think that it's easy to fall into the same kinds of sins that he did. And I think that because we got hit so hard with the worst that it could possibly be, I didn't fall into those traps. And we're living a good life here. We're happy. And I forgive everybody involved in this. And I just, I want to, I want to put it to rest as much as anybody. But for Milton's sister, Candace, and her husband, Kevin, pushing for justice in Milton's case is a lifelong mission that they will never cease. They owe it to Milton, they say. After all, they've been married 42 years now. They have two children who are now older than Milton was when he died. They have a wonderful life, all thanks to Milton insisting on introducing them. My whole life, my entire life from that point, has been connected to him. They're in touch with Fort Worth Police regularly, determined to make sure that detectives don't forget about Milton's case. They contact the media, writing letters to the editor about Milton's case on anniversaries of the murder and pleading for stories in hopes someone that knows something will come forward. In 2004, on the 20th anniversary, I did a story about the unsolved case and the DNA test that investigators hoped might help solve it and talk to Kevin, as did CBS 11. Here's a real-life CSI tonight. Family members of a North Texas man who was killed two decades ago are hoping new technology will lead to a break in the case. Whomever killed Milton um, is guilty of a terrible crime. I know that they've had to carry this with them through their life. I would ask that person or persons to, uh, to turn themselves in. Candace says she believes once they're gone, there'll be no one else left to fight for Milton. So this is the last chance, and I just can't seem to let that go. Uh, it, it's not, I'm not trying to torture myself. I'm not trying to belabor the point. I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm not, I just want the truth. 
If you have information about the murder of Milton Hatchell, please call Fort Worth Cold Case Detective L. Wagner at 817-392-4307. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.